This week, our executive producer, Adam Gobesi, suggested we watch the 1927 silent film London After Midnight. Uh, I guess no one has told him it was lost in a vault fire in 1965. Well, I'm hopeful. However, we did decide to take part of that suggestion and watch the 1902 French film, A Trip to the Moon. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cinematic Respect. I'm Charlie Wallace, and I'm your first co-host. And I'm Adam Gobeski, filling in for Jessica Clares as your second co-host, since apparently she has this thing called a social life. She doesn't want to travel uh, halfway across the state to do one episode of the show. To do a 30-minute episode. (laughs) Well, with us today, we have two guests. Um, Our first is a returning guest, but he's in here in person, Paul Wilcox. Welcome back to the show, Paul. Thanks for having me. And also today with us, he's not one of the hosts of the show, but he is hosting us in his apartment. Thank and you very much. Also a returning guest. Also a returning guest, Doug Gobeski. That's me. You've only done one so far? Yeah, I did Birdman. No, no others yet? No, because I've seen most uh, superhero films that I'm looking to see. Birdman was kind of an outlier. I was like, oh, it's, he's a superhero. I'm going to totally watch that. I was hoping this is going to be a rip-roaring sci-fi epic. So, so you only watch superhero films? And sci-fi epics. So, so far. <laughs> Since we are watching uh, a very old film, a film from 1902. So I was wondering, what's the oldest movie that all of us have watched, Paul? What's Besides this one, which you've now watched. Well, uh, I can't claim to have watched the whole thing. But I did watch Metropolis, and I'd say, yeah, besides A Trip to the Moon, that was my oldest feature film. Yeah, that's still one I haven't had a chance to sit down and see. You were saying it was pretty long? Yeah. Longer than you would yeah, expect. like, you know, when you click on a silent movie on Netflix, you kind of expect it to be about an hour or so. But it is, I think it's like over two hours. It's a, it's a big one. Oh, yeah. It's a big boy. <laughs> it's a big boy for sure. <laughs> so... So did you watch the restored version with the Argentinian footage in it? Yes, I I did. I believe there was a something noting that at the beginning of the film. So it was even longer. Nice. <laughs> oh, shoot. Jeez, for me. Um, I mean, I, I didn't watch as much Metropolis as Paul here, so I, I can't go with that. If I'm going with like an actual full movie that I've seen, uh, what was the first Marx Brothers film? Coconuts from 29. Well... It's going to be the coconuts, I think. Wait, when was Wizard of Oz? 33? Oh, no, okay. 39. 39, that late? Because uh, other than that, I've just sort of seen like bits and snippets of movies. Uh, what counts as a film? How long does it have to be? I didn't specify. Okay. It's up to your imagination. I mean, I did watch uh, Melia's first film in preparation for this from like 1896. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, you win. <laughs> <Not sure that>. <laughs> <laughs> but I watched that in preparation for this. So. This was a contest. I didn't say oh, I <laughs> the oldest wins. <laughs> Don't leave me in suspense. What film was that? Uh, it's called Playing Cards. It's basically just uh, some people playing cards and then someone comes and announces some news and one of the people's like, wow, it's like a two minute film. <laughs> <laughs> Did we ever find out what the news was? No. Nope. Ooh. Uh, prior to that, it was probably. Uh, I mean, we watched a little bit of a birth of the birth of a nation in uh, history class, although a lot of the really racist stuff got censored. That was my answer for the oldest movie I've watched, and I had to watch that. So I watched it once on television. I didn't quite know what it was, but I just knew it was a well-regarded movie. <laughs> wow! And 
influential yes. maybe yes sorry yes <laughs> it was an influential film and then i ended up later that year having to watch it again in elsewhere's <laughs> glass <laughs> which yeah some uh, nice stuff until the very racist ending of it. But. Yeah. but I think prior to that's probably like an early Laurel and Hardy silent. I think I watched The Lucky Dog, which is their first appearance together, although they're not really a team at that point. Just from like 1922 or something like that. So at least for, well, I think for the most part for all of us, this is now the oldest or pretty close to the oldest movie we've seen. Yeah, by far. But it's one that, I mean, even if you haven't, viewers out there haven't seen it it's one that you probably know at least a couple of frames from it's the movie that has the picture of the rocket ship that's shaped like a bullet hitting the man in the moon in the eye so um, violent film (laughs) (laughs) it is quite violent actually yeah highly influential on sam peckinpah (laughs) (laughs) so just a brief synopsis very brief synopsis of the movie the movie's only 16-ish minutes long. 14 to 16. 14 to 16, depending on what version of it you watch. is about a group of scientists who are dressed pretty much like wizards who've decided that they're going to go to the moon, and they go up in a bullet-shaped spaceship, land, fall asleep briefly, (laughs) are woken up by... Snow. Snow, yep. And then find a race of moon creatures who they uh, destroy violently, (laughs) (laughs) and then they return to Earth. With a captive moon prisoner. A captive moon prisoner and are treated as heroes. So, And they get a statue built to them. They do. Yeah. Just to one of them. A science statue. Yeah, to be fair, if I'm just like some general French citizen and I hear that some science wizards, you know, built a gun and shot the moon and came back when they've got this crazy moon man with them, I'd be like, heck yeah, man. That's crazy. I'm going I'm to, you know, build a statue and have a parade. Yeah, dude, I mean, it's good. Dude, I mean, yeah. You, you come up, you come up with a crazier thing to do at the turn of the century, okay? <laughs> you come up with a crazier reason for a parade. So presumably, all of you had at least heard of this movie, or at least were familiar with the image Charlie was describing. So, what did you actually expect it to be before you saw it? I was expecting like maybe a Charlie Chaplin style comedy, like whimsy and and fanciful stuff, and like ho ho. Take that, Mr. Moon Man. <laughs> you know, but what we got was not that. Paul? Um, so I had seen it before, <gasps> mostly. <sighs> I thought you said you fell asleep halfway through. Well, yeah. But I did finish it, but I slept through some of it. I mean, it's uh, okay. That's Doug. okay. We yeah. got Doug. But I, <laughs> I, the uh, one true guest. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, that means that we're converting Paul to host number three. Oh, <laughs> He's no. Been upgraded. No, we all get to gang up against him. Just think of a couple of questions. <laughs> why do you think this is true? <laughs> Doug, why did you hate this movie so much? This classic film? Mm, the black and white version or the color version? <laughs> oh, we'll get into that in a little bit. Sorry, I think we interrupted Paul's a- yeah, answer geez. to a question. <laughs> Sorry, oh, Paul. just like, if, I mean, before I had seen it at all, I kind of expected it to, to, yeah, have be a little... You know, kind of like a whimsical display of film technology at the time. <laughs> I guess I didn't realize there was so much a narrative to it. Like, I I w- didn't expect the part where there is, you know, people on the moon that they subjugate. <laughs> <laughs> was thinking we'd also see some kind of like Jules Verne style, like dudes in diving helmet type stuff as well. 
rather than just putting on their their top hats and their, <laughs> and their coats with They're tails walking and around just kinda... clothes rather than their wizard robes. I mean, the movie was inspired by Jules Verne, the books at least. Like it actually was? Yeah, From the Earth to the Moon, and uh, there's another book I can't remember offhand, but are cited by uh, Melias, the director, the creator. as. Uh, so, so I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy with that expectation then. What about you, Charlie? You'd seen it? Uh, I had not seen this, actually, which is kind of sad for a movie that's so short and so easily accessible. <laughs> Being in the public domain, you can watch as many versions as you want on YouTube. So it only took you 116 years. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the, the years before I was born don't count. <laughs> you could have watched it then. <laughs> what else was I doing? Right. Um, I think this was one where I actually got pretty much what I expected. I had seen and heard enough about it and it's such a short film that yeah i I guess it was kind of a little bit in both of our guests camp where i thought it was going to be yeah like very 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 loose plot like not like very linear narrative it was kind of like oh they're doing this thing and something funny happens and then the next thing happens and it's kind of funny and then they're back on earth but i didn't expect the movie to really have a point i guess (laughs) which it did it does yeah I uh, I hadn't seen it either. Uh, probably about where you are and my expectations. Mm. So, but yeah, it uh, this is a uh, this is an expensive film at the time. It cost ten thousand francs to make, apparently. Uh, highly influential film as well. Obviously, everyone, just about everyone, I think, is aware on some level of the bullet in the bleeding eye of the moon. This is also a very popular film, which is partly why it survived 116 years uh, and is, in fact, responsible for um, the rise of movie theaters and people going to movies and also uh, movie piracy. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, thanks to our uh, premier scientist inventor of the era, Thomas Edison. What? Dang Edison. Yeah. What? <laughs> you're going to have to fill me in on this one. I have no clue what you're talking about. Uh, so Edison invents the film, or a version of the film camera in the United States. Okay. And, you know, it's kind of popular. Because uh, the way movies were back in the time, people were entertained just by seeing moving pictures. Yeah. That's why Melly has his first film of just, like, people sitting playing cards at a tea party, right? Is, like, enough for people to be like, whoa, I'm gonna go see that again. And so Melly has uh, experimented more with film technique and stuff. Uh, there's a lot of... Uh, Guess what you'd sort of call jump cuts in this? Yes, actually, that would be like a jump cut, like a yeah, like the creatures vanishing after they've been hit with a like an umbrella, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Or oh, okay, uh, where they like, like splice the yeah, they disappear and then poof. Yeah, or okay. stuff like uh, I'm a wizard and now your telescopes are chairs at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so he was interested in doing that. Um, he was interested in doing multiple scenes. This is one of the earlier movies to have more than one scene. He becomes much more interested in narrative. And so these are all sort of interesting things that uh, the American audience is, well, worldwide, but particularly in America, is very interested in doing. So Melia sets up a, a company in America so he can, you know, sell the rice to this. But before he can kind of get that all squared away, uh, one of Edison's employees uh, reportedly smuggles a print out of Europe and into the United States where they just start making copies of this thing, which meant that everyone was able to see it. And that's why copies still exist. But uh, Melly has basically got no money for it, which is why he ends up largely penniless and unknown for portions of his life after this. Yeah, there's a good section of his life where he burns many of the copies of the films that he still has and then goes and 
works in a rail station for a few years selling candy. Yeah. (laughs) Candy and trinkets in a little shop. Did he burn them for warmth? He burnt them. I think he was just frustrated. I think he was just... F this? Yeah, exactly. He's like, I'm not going to be doing filmmaking anymore. Oh, wow. But then it was years later when some of his prints had been found again and brought to him that... Probably like 20 years later or something like that. That they were brought back into theaters and he was celebrated again. So at least there was something of a happy ending for him, is what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Okay. This is also a very influential film. Uh, D.W. Griffith, who uh, directed a lot of early movies, such as The Birth of a Nation, and uh, Edwin Porter, who did things like The Great Train Robbery, both basically said that uh, without this movie, they're just, they wouldn't have been inspired to make the movies they made. So, yeah, you can, you can credit A Trip to the Moon and George Melies with, like, all of American film history afterwards, right? As being, you know, linked up in some way. He's like the top of the genealogy tree here. So yeah, lots of technical innovations going on. Uh, one of those, uh, this is by no means the first film to do so, but it is one of the early films to have hand-colored prints uh, where they would literally just paint frame by frame. They'd do a handful of prints. I think I read it was 60 for this particular movie. 60 of, oh. the, co- 60 of the copies of this were hand-colored. And... Uh, so we watched a couple versions. We watched the uh, restored color version uh, available. I think a Lobster Films did the restoration on that, or yeah. at least partly did it. Yeah, early 2000s. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then uh, we watched one of the many black and white versions available on YouTube. The first one we started watching was the one of the color versions, which had been, I guess it had been found a while before, but they were finally able to do the restoration they really wanted to do. So when they initially found it, um, as far as they could tell, it had uh, melded together into what appeared to be just a solid block of unrecoverable film. But it wasn't until they looked at it that they worked out it was just actually the edges of the film, the top and the bottom, that had uh, fused together. So it took a long time to sort of unpick it and then substitute frames from like the black and white versions that existed to sort of like create a better, like a restored version of the color. So we started out by watching the more recent color version. Uh, Doug, what were your thoughts on that sort of technique? It's not something that, unless you've watched a lot of old films like that, that you've ever seen. It's the first time I've seen it. Um, I was actually aware that in the early days of film, they they had cut like before you see the whole mass produced film stuff with black and white films. Um, when they just had a few prints, they did do hand coloring. Uh, so I was aware of that. So that part wasn't a surprise to me. You don't see a lot of uh, um, we have like a tone to it. Like it's all mm-hmm. just like very flat splotches of color wherever it's colored. It seemed, uh, but. Now, in compare, do you want me to compare it to the black and white print? Yeah, sure. Um, there were some notable differences for me, at least. Like the in the color version, the the Moon Men looked like they had some sort of exoskeletons, and like it it just seemed very three dimensional looking there. Other things though were not as good. Like when the when you've got the our fearless explorers sleeping on the moon and we've got stuff fading in and out above them on the screen. Um, that was really hard to tell what was going on in the color version. So it was like you, like you got some stuff was more, more of a pop to it with the color, but other stuff was just muddier. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. I have to agree that it, it very much the quality dependent scene by scene and often frame by frame, how well it was colored, especially like I especially noticed in that first scene with the 
wizards. Oh yeah. <laughs> like some like you just see a lot of the coloring of the various figures, you know, kind of varied to the point where it's kind of dancing around the screen a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, not, not that you expect you expect some dancing anyway with a really old film, but it was especially pronounced with the yeah, the colored and I'm not super familiar with what the actual process of painting was like, but I'm guessing it's just because it was so difficult to actually do that sort of precision work on a film. Yeah, what so, size was film? Would was this filmed on? Like, what size of film would they have been actually coloring? So we're talking like painting with very exactly. tiny, tiny brushes and getting, trying to fill in very tiny figures. Probably only one chance to do that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I guess you can. Sp- get a new version of the film and splice that into the other stuff you've already colored. But for the most part, you want to avoid doing that. So it's like, how, how well can you reproduce the coloring on this guy's jacket from one frame to the next? And that's a lot of the dancing around, but um, yeah, it's it's an interesting point though, because I thought that was something that was kind of neat. I enjoyed Mm -hmm. that effect just because I mean, it's something that I'm not familiar with. If it was on purpose, I thought it would have even been a fun artistic effect, but Obviously, clearly, just because of the limitations of the technique they were actually using. Uh, so the set design that George Melius created for a lot of his movies, but this one specifically, is a lot of hand-painted backdrops, which in the black and white version, as Doug was saying, were you could tell very much that they were flat images. Yeah. Still lovely images, yeah. but for some reason when they were colored, it gave everything a little bit more depth. Yeah, particularly for the uh, the hollow moon scene. Oh yes, yeah the the scene where they first meet the one of the creatures who's coming across a log in the, the, the selenites. Wikipedia calls them. Like in the black and white version, you could tell they were had a very narrow path that they were all working on. But in the color version, it was just more of a, a yeah, full feeling scene. It just felt like there was stuff behind them that where they could go. I don't know. I don't quite understand how an umbrella turns into a toadstool, though. This is quite the trip to the moon here. Well, they are wizards, <laughs> but they're not wizards. Oh, they're like scientists, my right? Gosh, science are, wizards. Are these the first space wizards? Were these Jedi? <laughs> hmm. How much of an influence did this have on George Lucas? <laughs> Directly. <laughs> <laughs> There's few enough scenes in this movie that I feel like this time we could probably just walk through each one and talk about what we <laughs> liked and didn't like about each of them. I mean, one thing we should probably mention right off the bat is that uh, Melias uh, intended this as a satire of bad science <laughs> and uh, of imperialism. Which uh, I was interesting that you pointed that out to me after the movie because... I was picking up on that, but I almost didn't want to believe that that was intentional. I thought it was, again, I was still thinking like everyone else was like, oh, it's just a sort of fantastical story for entertainment value and maybe didn't have a deeper meaning. But And and I was kind of sitting here like, ha, 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 we're so smart in 2018 that there's no way that this, you know, <laughs> that this wasn't just like whole scale, like they're, you know, Sincere. glorifying <laughs> the subjugation of the moon people. <laughs> So I, I felt really humbled by that and encouraged. Oh, Paul, that just means that in a hundred years, we still haven't gone anywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're no more advanced. The <laughs> peoples of the past were just as awesome as us. <laughs> uh, so the first scene is the space scientist wizards all standing around in a an auditorium deciding 
yes, we are going to go to the moon. Uh, one thing I noticed uh, is how busy the frame actually is. There's lots going on in the picture, like in the background and on the sides and things like that. Uh, for instance, all I knew is that for like the first time we watched it, I was like, oh, scientists are yelling at the chief scientist and now they're cool with it. Right. And then it's like you pay like a little closer attention. You're like, oh, that's just like a dissident. And the other ones are like, shut up. Going to the moon and killing the Moonanites is awesome. I wondered how much of that was Melies's direction, too. Like, was he telling each person individually what to do or just saying like, hey, make up some story about what you're doing? Oh, I'm willing to bet there was a fair amount of improv going. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I imagine these were all probably theater actors, right? Yes. Yes. And uh, circus performers in yes. some cases, Ooh. some of them. Magicians, some of them as well. <laughs> <laughs> Truthfully, yes. Huh. Wait, what? Like, for real, for real? Well, like, you know, performing. Yeah, magicians. like, like yeah. David, like the, the turn of the century version of David Copperfield kind of thing. When okay, you say I thought we were going to say right? David Blaine. <laughs> and I'm like, well. <laughs> the regular Chris Angel. Yes, exactly <laughs> like that. <laughs> Trying to class things up here, guys. <laughs> <laughs> nope, mind freak all day, baby. <laughs> By the way, uh, oh. just to, to note, the chief wizard is in fact uh, Georges Méliès himself. Oh, oh, oh yes, yeah. wow. He, he liked to show up in the majority of his own films. The original director slash actor slash writer. Oh, I was just wondering, like you know, because we didn't notice the uh, the naysayer really until the black and white viewing. I was wondering if it yeah. is a satire. Wonder if he was going for something with that naysayer. Not that I've really thought about it too heavily or anything, but some wizards are dumb. <laughs> well, no, because he would be—he would be the the—he was like, "We need to obey the prime directive." Maybe, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> we should think about it before we just go to the moon. <laughs> so you think? So you think he was probably all on board with the science of the trip? It's just he was concerned about sociological yeah or yeah and, and and not that he wanted to be he didn't want to be fired out of a gun to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> he was really he was the jeff goldblum of that moon operation <laughs> spent so much time thinking about if we could <laughs> didn't consider if we should well he he knew enough to know that wizards will find a way <laughs> 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 I'll uh, I'll be here all night, folks. <laughs> Tip your weight staff. Then we transition to a scene where they're actually building the bullet-shaped spaceship. See a lot of men at work, and see them looking over a town. And then we get to the shot of them actually going to the moon, of the bullet being shot out of a gigantic cannon and a mortar. A mortar, yes, and the um, sailor women. Uh, what sailor, or what would you say that they were wearing? Oh, and oh, the bathing oh, yeah, suit clad yeah. women, the bathing beauties. Yeah, the bathing beauties, wishing them farewell, and the uh, admiral with a cutlass. It's a lot of fanfare for them leaving to the moon. Don't forget the scene of the, them watching it being built, and as they poured the metal into the cast, I think that's what was happening. Oh, oh. He saved that one right. for the episode because we were all wondering. <laughs> yeah, we're like, to me what is that <laughs> hole in the ground? Why is there steam coming okay. up out of that hole? <laughs> They're making the bullet. I thought that was, was kind of I a thought cool. it was like riveted panel construction, though. Or maybe it was just part of it, like the inner the the inner pressure hole. Um. Yeah. One thing I just noticed with the uh, with the bathing beauties. Uh, 
just seemed like there was a lot of a lot of skin, a lot of leg for 1902. <laughs> and, and I don't know if we like moved like backwards a little bit until further into the century, or if it's just France. It's probably just France. Yeah, I think okay. so. <laughs> Uh, one of the uh, disadvantages that we have is that apparently at the time when they uh, would show this movie, they frequently included a live narrator to tell you what was actually happening. Really? On the screen. Yes. Yeah. So we were obviously denied that here. That's why apparently we know the names of some of the characters and stuff, even oh. though it doesn't show up anywhere in the print. Is there a? Um, are there any transcripts of that left over? D- did they have names like Qui Gon Jinn? No, they're French names that I'm not going to try to pronounce. The, the oh, like Qui-Gon of Qui Gon Jin. So that would be one way we could definitely have figured out about the the casting of the ship because that makes a lot of sense. Uh, looks like it might actually exist. Well, we gotta watch it again <laughs> with Adam reading the script with, in his best megaphone crooner voice. <laughs> and here we see, <laughs> but one member violently opposes same. After some argument, the president throws his papers and books at his head. <laughs> Upon order being restored, the trip proposed by the president is voted by acclamation. Oh, so they don't explain why he was objecting, even though I know that it was because he, <laughs> <laughs> because he didn't want to violate the prime directive. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that could kind of make sense. Maybe audiences weren't... They certainly weren't used to interpreting silent stagecraft or things like this with weird transitions or they were fantastical in that sort of way. So maybe they needed some sort of explanation to help them along because we've been trained our whole lives. Also, uh, apparently the the mold is for the gun. Oh, oh yeah. That makes perfect sense. That was a solid okay. piece. Yeah. I was going to say the riveted construction did seem weird. But yeah, there's also the fact that like I want to say Metropolis, you go back and watch that and you get a bunch of, you know, people moving around doing stuff. And then you get an interstitial either setting up the next scene or explaining what somebody's feeling or yelling about or such. And then back to actual moving pictures. We didn't have any interstitials in this one. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't even noticed that. But So according to Medium.com, the first movie with uh, inner titles is the 1901 film Scrooge or Marley's Ghost, hmm. directed by Walter R. Booth. Also happens to be the first movie based on a work by Dickens. Apparently it was initially about six minutes long. Hmm. So it existed, I guess, as an option, but... Yeah, although maybe not in France. Correct, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. So then we get that shot of them hurtling towards the moon or we just see the perspective of the front of the ship going towards the moon and the moon gradually coming closer to the camera which was actually a uh, an advancement a, an advanced technique at the time and the the moon becomes someone's face all done up in makeup and then the bullet hits hits the moon in the right eye and a bunch of goop comes out which in the color version is red mm-hmm. presumed to be blood so the moon is made of meat Yes, some some meaty man of the moon. <laughs> and here we thought it was just cheese. <laughs> Get a cracker theory here and you got a Lunchables. Mm. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> so, Doug, what did you think of that particular shot? I mean, it's one that we all uh, know about going into it, but how do you uh, thought it worked? Here's where I'm going to be a huge jerk and be all not respecting their limitations at all uh my first time seeing it seeing that shot uh it was a little difficult 
like just understanding what was going on because all of the clouds on the border of the the shot just were stationary so i'm like okay so the moon's just slowly getting bigger but we're not really we don't seem to be moving at all because you know i was expecting the clouds to part or something and then all of a sudden bam right in the eye so it was, just so, kind of, so it, was it was just a little bit uh, so for all you know the moon could be moving at you like in uh like in say majora's mask or also in melia's uh 1898 work the astronomer's dream <laughs> see see under this interpretation it's it's possible that they were going to the moon to save us from the moon that's why they had to do what they did in the subsequent scenes because the moon was coming to earth and they had to put a stop to that mm. put it back into space where it belongs show it what its proper place is <laughs> maybe set off some sort of device on the moon yeah <laughs> to stop the collision course <laughs> maybe. with earth Maybe send up you people specially in the, trained in you poke this them in the activity, eye. but none of the other activities. <laughs> oh my. But I we're, just we're, got that. We're going to save this for the Mary uh, Michael Bay March. <laughs> Looking forward to pain and gain. <laughs> but then we get to the moon, and everyone decides to take a nap. <laughs> like, ah, oh, we've got to the trip. moon. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. It's a long trip. They all decide to take a nap. They put their covers over them, and then we get this interesting effect of stars appearing in the background and faces within those stars, and then that being replaced by different celestial beings. Yeah. was it? Were they dropping snow on the guys, or was that stardust? I don't... It, I think it's snow because that's why they wake up, and maybe they're cold? Hmm. Okay. It makes them wake up. That's all we really know. They didn't realize that there was going to be precipitation on the moon, so they didn't bring their (laughs) tents. (laughs) They were just sleeping out. Then the stars are replaced by a lovely vision of Phoebe on the crescent, of Saturn and his globe surrounded by a ring, and of charming young girls holding up a star. They decide to punish the terrestrials in an exemplary manner. By order of Phoebe, snow is falling from all quarters, covering the ground with its white coat. The cold becomes terrible. Oh. All right. Yeah, I'm glad that we found that. (laughs) There's definitely an intent with that scene. So now it's time for mushrooms, baby. So then they finally, finally, after 10 minutes, get to meet their their first moon creature, the Selenite, who is like a mixture between a skeleton and a crab, almost? Uh, I think an insect sort of look is what they were going for. Oh, so like a pincher sort of claw. They they had some sort of pincers on their uh um they kind of had like horns i think and just kind of like a mask on that was a little bit hard to tell you know just because of the yeah kind of just like a pagan worshiper yeah yeah hmm. <laughs> we're, we're someone who's putting on a mask pagans? yes De- deserving of subjugation <laughs> <laughs> were you scared of the celibates paul uh i mean maybe a little bit in the way i'm like scared of people who wear shirts that like have like the bones. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Those costumes are apparently expensive to make. <laughs> I thought they looked pretty good overall. So I guess we hadn't talked about this at this point. Like all of this stuff was well, I mean, it's true of most movies, but all this stuff was handcrafted by his team and hand painted and all the costumes made specifically for this presentation. Although I think some of the stuff from the earlier work that paul mentioned that we had watched the 
the astronomer's dream may have been reused for this film, which of course, if you're making as many films as Melius made, makes a lot of sense. Wait, how many films did he make? Uh, over 500, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Of which about 200 still survive. That's still quite a bit. Yeah, it's a pretty wrong. good uh, percentage for yeah. something as old as that. Somehow the scientist knows that if they put a, an umbrella in the ground, it will grow into a mushroom. But underneath this mushroom comes out this selenite to, I, I think at first, do they try to make some sort of, have some sort of communication with them? Or do they just go straight towards bashing him with an umbrella? But, uh, you know, he does this kind of crazy frogman pose where he's like uh, walking on his hands and he's got his legs tucked behind his shoulders. Um, maybe, maybe the... Humans were just confused by that. <laughs> so what do you do with things that you're confused by? You kill them. <laughs> I mean, to be fair to the scientist, he didn't know that if he hit him with an umbrella, he would explode into a poof of dust. I mean, yeah, but then he kept doing it. Okay, yeah. <laughs> he was like, oh, cool. I can make things. I can make creatures disappear. Well, well he was interested in some real science. And he needed enough samples to ensure that he had the statistical power. (laughs) That real indictment of science that Melies was going for, I think, Doug. Well, yeah, I mean, it's 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 one thing to sacrifice one animal, but you know, you just got to sacrifice Moon Man after Moon Man. (laughs) Then the uh, the scientists get, I think, they get captured by the. Yes, a lot more reinforcements come. Yeah, and. They get brought back to the royal chamber, as I like to call it. (laughs) (laughs) You like to call it this one time you've ever referred to it in your life? (laughs) (laughs) But I've chosen the name. (laughs) Here to four. I'm committed. It shall be. (laughs) Which actually I thought was a pretty cool uh, set piece as well. For such a short scene, too. Yeah. They have probably... 10 selenites in that room too it's not just one costume they made they had to make costumes for so many people and they did a really good job of making them consistent from guy to guy there was there wasn't anybody obviously like oh that guy's just you know in the background and his costume looks like trash (laughs) like they all made their own costume at home (laughs) no (laughs) yeah no they look pretty good and they're brought before the i don't know presumably king i guess it could have been queen but yeah according to this it's a king Succumbing to numbers, the astronomers are captured, bound, and taken to the palace of the king of the Selenites. And then I think the king, does the king decide that they're to be destroyed? Or at least the king is acting in a very aggressive manner, and then they escape. Maybe he's just rightfully a little bit indignant that they offed, like, you know, his son, several maybe. <laughs> of his people with, <laughs> with their magic umbrellas. <laughs> That's right, they've never seen an umbrella. The, uh, the script doesn't say why he's upset with them, but presumably. Mm. Is it because they're murderers? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess you could say that it's that they're there at all, but, you know. Yeah, I guess I think- so. Yeah. <laughs> so then our heroes, in quotes, escape and start killing more of them. Well, yeah, they, they actually do it by killing the king himself. <laughs> <laughs> they lose all morale and are able to, unable to keep focused as a group yeah. after they kill the leader. <laughs> Which I, I uh, while we were watching, I likened that to if Qui Gon Jinn had run through Boss Nass with his lightsaber. <laughs> yeah, maybe the king just wanted them all to sit down. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, maybe it looked aggressive, but it's the same as like. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all the scientists escape to their capsule, save for one who jumps on a string attached to the end at the edge of a cliff and drags it downward. I thought presumably to his own death, <laughs> but I guess gravity brings them back to Earth. Is that, well, that yeah, what happens? The moon's up in the sky, so clearly if you you know get up there and then you jump off a cliff, you'll fall to Earth. Apparently it's actually the leader. It's uh the the main guy who fall grabs the rope. Oh, okay. oh. Yeah. it was a little hard to keep track of characters. Yeah. I think yeah. Yeah, they're all wearing the same wizard hats. <laughs> <laughs> Shining example of the uh, servant leader. <laughs> <laughs> they land in the ocean, uh, take a boat back to the shore, and are celebrated as heroes after they fight off the giant salamanders. Oh yeah, yeah there are some <laughs> salamanders in the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that was kind of cool. So I was like, oh, he must have actually set that up in an aquarium. Yeah, or it's like a fish tank with salamanders. A yeah. fish tank yeah. with some salamanders. Making the first kaiju film. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I thought that, yeah, I thought that was really cool because it was just an effect we hadn't seen to that point. I didn't expect actual animals to show up yeah. in the movie. And so they throw them all a parade because they're heroes because they killed the king of the moon. Then the remaining selenite is forced to dance for their amusement. <laughs> and they and there's they erect a statue of was it of one of was of it of a sign? Oh, okay, of the leader with his uh foot on the moon. I think it really drove home the satire there. And the uh and the the slogan work conquers all. <laughs> was that what that said? <laughs> <laughs> and the word science. Yes. <laughs> Clearly on there as well. So yeah, the satirical elements come in just regarding how the scientists are generally treated as somewhat buffoonish, I think, but still come out okay because that's the way the world works. And then uh, there's yeah, there's a strong uh, anti-imperial strength uh, strand running through this where we killed the king of the moon. That's a very good thing, you know. How awesome are we? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we destroyed a culture. Go us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and. I, you brought up Jeff Goldblum earlier, but I think it's kind of appropriate. There's also that theme of, you know, we didn't think we didn't think at all about whether we should do this or not. <laughs> Just like, well, we can go to the moon. Let's go to the moon. Shout down. Now the let's naysayer. go back. Hooray. What did we find out? I don't know. We can grow mushrooms there. We brought back a specimen by accident. <laughs> <laughs> so there's no music that accompanies this film. At this point, at yes. least no specific music. Because it's a silent film, right? I mean, how would you do that at this point? Uh, so if, apparently for some of Melia's uh, film, uh, films, uh, he actually would uh, commission works to be played and like specific pieces oh. to go with. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't clear to me from my brief Wikipedia <laughs> if such a piece had been commissioned for this movie or not. Although uh, there's at least one piece that's called A Trip to the Moon that may possibly be the official score quote-unquote of the uh of the movie so one of the fascinating things about a movie like this is that well if there's no score at least that's known that specifically belongs to this movie is anyone can make up the score so we listened to a few of them doug what did you think about the music for the first version of the film that we watched that was the color version with the what was it jeff mills music correct yeah um I mean, it was okay for what it was, but like, if I'm watching a silent film, I'm kind of expecting silent film era 
period music to give me the full effect. So like something jaunty or maybe calliope music. Um, and it was not what I was getting there with the Jeff Mills stuff. It was just, it did not do it for me. It was more of like a electronic, but sort of foreboding or yeah, like, sort of like tonally, yeah. tonally, it didn't feel right at times. Like, like it felt like it gave me a sinister feel when I was expecting more of a, more of a jovial feel. I I can see the that it might not fit perfectly or that it's like sort of putting an interpretation of the movie onto it rather than say hey take this in as it was for the people of the of the time. I didn't so much take a sinister feel from his score as I took more of like a neutral sort of little bit of like a dreamy spacey feel to it. So I agree with you, Paul. I got that too, but I'm not going to disagree with Doug either. I felt very sort of tense <laughs> the whole time. And it didn't really light up either. You thought that maybe when they got to the moon, it would be a little bit more like you were talking about it. No, it was very much the same sort of music throughout. Yeah, it's like a flat. The tone is flat pretty yeah. much. Well, maybe I'm just kind of uh, taking a Zap Brannigan approach where I can't stand this dang neutrality. <laughs> <laughs> It seems wrong. Paul, you had mentioned originally when you had half watched this film, (laughs) you had seen the, um, so you'd listened to the version uh, created by the band Air. Yes. Which apparently was the original track for the color restoration. So what, I mean, how did you feel about that? We all listened to that, listened to part of that album after it was done, but we didn't watch the entire movie with that soundtrack overlaid. After kind of like listening to the album again a little bit and remembering when I was watching it, I think I liked that soundtrack more. And maybe it's because I just, the music was a little more interesting or varied for each scene. Like the songs are like, di- you know, supposed to directly correspond to what's happening to some extent, you know, not necessarily in a full movie score sort of way, but sort of in the, the tone of each scene. I thought it was it was pretty cool, and it sort of put sort of a dreamy post-rock interpretation of the movie. So you're saying that you can't be blamed for having fallen asleep to it the first time? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it was probably 4 a.m. <laughs> I, yeah, okay. I'll, I'll pretty much agree with you on that, yeah. I actually thought the air version although not the sort of thing that i would be expecting for this i thought it did work pretty well um so what do you think of the movie overall paul we've watched it two times two different versions multiple soundtracks you know actually i think it was more entertaining than i thought it would be going into it um especially when you look at you know the elaborate and actually pretty cool sets and just thinking about how these things might have been accomplished even if i didn't really know how they always were you know, I thought it was really interesting from sort of a film history standpoint, even though I'm not anywhere close to a film historian. So 
it, and it was still entertaining. So for what it was, I thought it was enjoyable. Would you recommend that people see this? Yeah. Yeah, I would. Like anyone listening right now that hasn't seen it should should pause right now and queue up the, the video. Yeah, maybe try to find the air version if you can. Or just put on your favorite album. Whatever. <laughs> Dark Side of the Moon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which the, I believe the top comment on YouTube for that was like, really Pink Floyd-esque or something like that. <laughs> Doug, how, what did you think of the movie overall? Um, thought it was pretty good. Different from what I was expecting, but... Uh... Um, I appreciate that they actually got more than just a technology demo. Like it wasn't just, oh, here's some cool new, you know, filmmaking techniques that we have. It was like, no, you've actually got a full story going on here. And, uh, it, the inclusion of wizards definitely helped my interest. (laughs) (laughs) Would you recommend this to to anyone? Uh, I would recommend this to the 420 set. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair, yeah. You know what? You know what? Let's 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 not beat around the bush. Star Wars fans. Star Wars fans are going to love this. It's got space wizards. They're practically Jedi. <laughs> you know, the the umbrella that he's using is is it's like a proto lightsaber. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I also uh, enjoyed the film quite a bit. It it was definitely more than I was expecting. I was kind of expecting something fairly uh Something that hadn't aged well, like, at all. And that's not at all what I got. Like, it's definitely, like, you know, stagey in places. But I think it holds up really well. Uh, And so I would recommend that everyone see this movie. You have 18 minutes. Go sit down and watch the movie. Yeah, we sat down and watched it twice. Yeah. (laughs) And didn't regret any minute of it, I don't think. Pretty much, yeah. The way that the movie uses things like cross-cutting and jump-cutting to it, which is kind of, yeah, like Paul was saying, it kind of makes you sit down and actually think about how you would do something like that. It's almost like 1902. How would they, you know, how would they accomplish that? And you realize that, yeah, they've been doing that since the beginning, and we just take that for granted now. But <laughs> and you know, these techniques are are probably some of them are coming back with the everyone has an amazing digital camera with them at all times and the power to edit on their computer and post it to YouTube. R.I.P. Vine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Paul, Doug, uh, you've watched something that. Adam and I thought you should watch. Now's your chance to tell the world something you think they should experience. So I would recommend that everyone watch the Betty Boop cartoon, Minnie the Moocher, which uh, is kind of an interesting cartoon from uh, 1932 by Fleischer Studios that uh, features a rotoscoped version of Cab Calloway as a walrus. I'm doing some pretty cool dancing (laughs) and just kind of the rotoscope tech, you know, technique kind of, I don't know if you're interested in kind of older film techniques, seeing that kind of, you know, anthropomorphized walrus rotoscope dancing combined with some of the other um, perhaps more bizarre things that are happening in this uh, cave for Betty and her boyfriend uh can't remember his name (laughs) (laughs) who's like a who's like you know some sort of animal so so was this movie a huge influence on kevin smith when he created tusk (laughs) (laughs) guess i have to tweet at him and ask (laughs) (laughs) doug well uh first I, i guess i would like to recommend if you're listening to this uh maybe a few years after the initial release of this podcast that you try a trip to the moon yourself. <laughs> well, and if that's not an option, 
uh maybe try the uh, sam rockwell kevin spacey movie moon much like this one it is not a light-hearted jaunt <laughs> i don't know i laughed a lot in moon <laughs> that's not true i didn't laugh a lot during moon <laughs> Uh, so this this week, I want to recommend a movie that I only watched recently, which was uh, the 1923 silent film Safety Last, uh, which stars uh, silent film star Harold Lloyd and this crazy like building climbing scene, which takes the second half of the movie. And it, it kind of reminded me of this film a little bit in that there's just a lot of interesting camera techniques and things that are used that you kind of like oh how do they do that and it turns out at least in that movie a lot of it was just him and the stuntman climbing a building (laughs) (laughs) although some of it was like building a building on top of another building so that it wouldn't be quite as unsafe but (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's worth it for that like the the beginning parts of it are pretty funny anyway with a lot of the hijinks and stuff he gets into living in the city but that that last part with the building climbing was Pretty intense. I'd recommend it. Uh, my recommendation is, I although I hadn't seen uh, the movie before, I had seen a recreation of the making of it a bit, and that was in the 1998 HBO miniseries From the Earth to the Moon, which is uh, largely about the Apollo program, but the last episode deals somewhat with the making of this film. And I really enjoyed the entire uh, miniseries, and I recommend that people watch that. So, Paul, Doug... Thank you very much for being on the show. Well, I mean, you were recording from my living room, so <laughs> Adam it I... certainly wasn't much uh, much of a commitment from myself. You got a new bed. You could have been out, conked out in the uh, other room. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have to be here, so <laughs> accept our gratitude, Doug. <laughs> you too, Paul. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're welcome, Charlie. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was looking for. It's been fun. <laughs> maybe just maybe just delete all that and just go with yeah it's been fun <laughs> you're welcome I've I, I've thoroughly I'm glad that I was able to appreciate and respect a movie that I otherwise probably would not have watched although I guess I would have because I'd already seen it <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to use that in the promos for the show in the future <laughs> Paul's recommendation for cinematic respect <laughs> And as for us, if you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast. It's easy to do at our website, cinematicrespect.com. Also, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Just search for Cinematic Respect and you'll find us. Then we transition to a scene where they're actually building the bullet-shaped spaceship. We see a lot of men at work. For, for a moment there, for a moment there, he was silent, and I was hoping he wasn't going to do that. <laughs>